Today's scripture reading is Joshua 24, 1 through 15. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave the hill country of Zaire to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, today we're going to uh, finish up with the book of Joshua. And so uh, for those of you who haven't been here, we've been going through um, this book since September. And so we're finishing it up today. And um, the focus of Joshua has always been about the purity of worship. So while we've seen a lot of battles, um, we've, we've seen Israel come in and possess the land that God has promised them. Over and over again, um, the book is about worshiping God as he is. And so last week, uh, Sam gave us Joshua's farewell address. Um, and today, Joshua finishes his farewell address, version 2.0, as um, he now gathers the people again to um, lay out exactly how they should take steps to uh, construct a plan to continue the spiritual health for the nation of Israel um, as they move forward and as he dies. So, Chapter 24 begins by Joshua gathering the people in the presence of God. Now, the assembly of God's people presenting themselves before God has a name. It's called the church. 
Now, I mention this because I think when we're reading in the Old Testament, it's very easy for us to look back and go, well, that was them, this is now, um, and to start looking at what we do here on Sundays as a man-made institution, as nothing more than um, a formal creation that is divorced and very distinct from the intentions of God. And so we create this kind of organic life force sort of God, and we say, and then this is what man has created because they're not comfortable with that God. Um, that is not true. Actually, here we see that the church is God's idea, and it's his way of manifesting himself to the nations. And so the people of Israel come together, and they begin, it says they presented themselves before God. Now, to explain this, God is present everywhere, is he not? Yes. That's uh, where we get the term omnipresence, which is one of the characteristics of God. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But God is there very specifically um, and in a very distinct way when his people are gathered together to hear his word. This is not an option in the Bible. It doesn't say go to church when you feel like it. Instead, Hebrews tells us to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Why? Because otherwise, the Christian life becomes nothing more than kind of this personal quest towards piety, right? God created this community for a number of reasons, and we'll see some of those reasons as we move on in this chapter. Um, We'll see God calling his church to a more formal structure than we are usually comfortable with. But we'll get there. First, they gather, and they gather at Shechem. Now, Shechem is important because it's the place where God first called Abraham, Shechem is the place um, where God reached down and said, you are my chosen one, in Genesis 12. They gather back here to be reminded of how far they had come, right? They traveled all the way from there to Egypt and back now. Um, It's also to see all the things that God had done to get them here. And so the place represents that, but Joshua's sermon begins there as well. He speaks with the authority of God as a prophet. It says, thus says the Lord. So his words here are directly of the Lord. And he retells the story of the inheritance, um, Israel's inheritance from God. Now it tells it from God's point of view, which is interesting. Because the way that this history is laid out is much different than we would lay out a history. Um, It's definitely much different than Israel would like to recount their history. And so, let's look at how God sees the history of Israel. Verse 2, he says, they served other gods. So the first thing that's made clear is that the patriarchs, Abraham, was not a faithful man. He was not faithful to God before he was called. It says, Abraham served other gods. He was not worthy of the blessings that God was going to bestow on him. He did not make it halfway And God did not come down and meet him halfway. Abraham was serving other gods, and God said, no, now you are mine. He grabbed him, and his choice was based on God's terms. And I love the way that verse 3 puts this. God says, I took him. God is the active force in the establishment of the nation of Israel. Now he goes on in verses 3 to 5 to say, I gave. It's repeated three times. He says, I gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Zaire. So God continues to be in control of the blessings. He's in control of the choice to begin with, and he's in control of constantly blessing Israel. And he is always working. right? He is always blessing, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. 
What's interesting in this history of Israel um, is that time when they were in slavery in Egypt. And you think about that time. He recounts here, I gave Esau the hill country of Zaire. So Jacob and Esau split, right? Jacob is um, the one that the promise is given to. He's the chosen one of God. That's the nation that God is establishing. And Esau goes off and God gives him land. Now, the people of Jacob are like, yeah, we're God's people. We're the ones who are going to receive it. And yet, at that point, they're in slavery, and Esau's descendants are living it up in the hill country. So it would be very difficult for them to grasp on with their limited view as to the promises of God or how they were being fulfilled or whether or not they actually were the blessed people anymore. And I can imagine that that was very difficult, that there would be times when they would question the validity of the promise that God had made, when they stopped believing that God was ever going to fulfill the promise that he'd made. They forgot, but God never did. And the history goes on to say, God sent Moses and Aaron, God plagued the Egyptians, God brought his people out, God brought them to the Red Sea, God put darkness between the people of Israel and Egypt, and he crushed them with water. Why does he continue to do this? So that they could see God. So verse 7, the second half of verse 7 says, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. The whole story of the Exodus of God bringing his people out of slavery is one of God showing the Egyptians and showing his own people who he is, or as he says to Moses, who I am. We studied Exodus here a couple of years ago, and um, one of the things that always stuck with me was uh, the plagues, the ten plagues. You remember the ten plagues? God um, sent down a plague, and then Pharaoh would say, no, I won't let the people go, so he'd send another one down, no, I won't let them go, ten times. Um, And when we were studying that, when we were going through Exodus, one of the things that really stuck out was the idea that God did not need ten plagues in order to punish the Egyptians. He did not use up all of his power on the plagues. We're talking about the God who created the universe with his voice, right? It would take less than a whisper for him to wipe all the people out. So why didn't he? He did it so he could specifically show them who he was. And every single one of the plagues corresponded with an Egyptian god. And so every single time, he would say, oh, that god that you have there, not the real god. That god that you have there, not the real god. That god that you have there, not the real god. And in effect, what he was showing was his absolute authority over all creation. He was preaching a sermon there of who he was to both the Egyptians and to his own people. But God is not only present in the supernatural. He's not only present when frogs fall from the sky. God is also active in the things that seem very natural to us. The things that we could pretty easily think we're doing. So here is God's description of the great battles fought against the Amorites. He says, They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. That's God's repeated declaration. I destroyed your enemies. But then he also says, in the case of Balaam and Balak, the two two guys that he mentions there, if you know the story of, of Balaam, he was actually an enemy of God who was going to correspond or to join up with Balak to um, inflict harm on the Israelite people. And God turned him around and put his own words in his mouth. How did God turn him around? He made Balaam's donkey speak to him. 
right? God turned him around and he used God's enemies to actually bless them. So God continues to say, you did not defeat them, I gave them to you. It was not by your sword, but by my hand. I am God in both power and protection. Then he goes on, verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So this whole historical account is not just to show what God had done. It was not just to remind the people of what they had gone through. And it certainly wasn't a rallying cry for Israel. Yay, Israel, look at all we've done. This history is a declaration of exactly who God is. And the reason Joshua starts here is because we can't move on to the implications until we grasp the source. Too often, we come to church, we want a practical sermon. A sermon that's going to tell us how we should respond. But what we need to hear over and over again is simply the nature of God. Now, I'm the same way. I'm playing a church up in Mount Vernon, sit down with people all the time, and I start to, um, this week I was thinking about the conversations that I usually have. The conversations are anywhere from, um, you know, kind of working out some small theological detail. Um, Sometimes it's, how is your church going to practice this? Um, But very often I can sit and talk to people for a very long time without ever clarifying and making sure that we serve the same God. I too often become centered around the how-tos rather than simply, who is God? Now, it's important to talk about application, but we never know who the person we're talking to well enough to know if they are serving the same God. And so, before we get to the how-tos, we need to know the why. Now, When we talk about love, it's really impossible to talk about what is love until somebody has seen he who is love. And we cannot begin to talk about truth until people know he who is truth. It's impossible to talk to people about loving submission and service until they witness the submission of Jesus Christ on the cross. So our response to God should be born out of an understanding of his nature, not just a list of things we should do. So Joshua leads here with God. But then in verse 14, he gives us the therefore. So verse 14 says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. This is the key verse of the entire chapter. So if you forget everything else that I say, which is likely, at least remember this. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Everything before this verse has been about motivation. This is the reason why we do it. Everything after this is about how to maintain this right here. There's a delicate simplicity to to it. As we all are going out trying to figure out what is the Christian life about, Joshua tells us. He says, fear God, serve him sincerely, serve him faithfully. Simple idea. Very difficult practice. And the reason why it's so difficult is because we're broken people and we serve a holy God. And so, the chasm between those two is great. Now, the idea of the fear of God is all over the Bible. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Deuteronomy continually tells us to teach our children to fear the Lord. This phrase, fear God or fear the Lord, appears in the Bible about a hundred times. So this isn't just like, hey, it's here in Joshua and it doesn't ever occur again. 
This is what God commands of his people, which I think is a little bit shocking, at least it was to me, because most of us have been introduced to a buddy Jesus, right? The unthreatening Jesus. The Jesus who is difficult to respect, let alone fear. So when God asks us to fear, what does he mean? He doesn't want us to be scared of him, does he? Does he? I like the definition that's given by a guy named Ed Welch in a book called uh, When People Are Big and God is Small. We have it on the shelf out here. It's highly recommended. He says this, This fear of the Lord is reverent submission that leads to obedience. Like terror, it includes a knowledge of our sinfulness and God's moral purity, and it includes a clear-eyed knowledge of God's justice and his anger against sin. But this worship fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and love. Many of us need to return to the God of the Bible. We need to return to our Bibles and reintroduce ourselves to a healthy fear of God. Because many of us will end up trying to serve sincerely and faithfully apart from a fear of God. And we'll find meaning in the service of God rather than in God himself. And we'll take what is meant to be a response to his glory and we'll use it as a tool for our own glory. And we'll take the power that is God's and we'll use it as a way to justify and and puff up ourselves. That exists all over this church. It exists all over the church. Using God's response, using the service of God, using faithfulness in the church to somehow feel better about yourself. What does this look like? Well, these fearless followers will sometimes talk all day long about serving God, and they'll be excited about the work of the church, so they're hard to spot. But in the end, again, they're trying to find the meaning in themselves. They have the works, but they don't have sincerity and faithfulness because they don't know who God is. They don't actually see God for his full glory as it's given in the Bible. And what they'll usually talk about, and honestly, again, I find myself falling into this. Talk about what part I play in God's story. How can God use me? And we become obsessed with personal gifts and personal mission. All for a personal self-empowerment. But the gospel is not now, nor has it ever been, about personal empowerment. The gospel is about a relationship with a holy God. And you cannot have sincerity and you cannot have faithfulness until you know who God is. Because it is impossible to have love for God if you think that he exists to serve you. Let's make sure as we read Joshua 24 that we don't just jump straight to verse 14 without reading the first 13. That we realize... We are nothing, but that God has made us something. This is the gospel. And Romans 5, which is my favorite chapter in the Bible right now, brings me to my knees every time. Here's what it says. It says, For while we were still weak, or the right, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is where we start, with a healthy understanding of our separation from God and the work that he has done to bring us back to him. He is the reconciling God, and we should fear him because of his power in both blessing and in in his wrath. Because the truth of it is, if we don't fear God, we're going to fear something else. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. We are created as people of worship. Joshua knows this, so he lays out a choice for the people. And he says, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, Joshua's call here is not a clever call to serve God. He doesn't use any gimmicks. He doesn't try to trick people. As a matter of fact, if you read back through the historical account he laid out, he talks about the divine election of Abraham, the completing of his predetermined plan, his sovereign hand in the annihilation of both Egypt and Canaan, and he finishes by basically saying, Israel, you are nothing. Not exactly an easy one to buy into. But Joshua isn't worried about them buying into it. And I wonder, what can we learn from Joshua the evangelist? Because I think not only should we lead with who God is, but we actually need to present him in all of his offensive glory. Most of us have been raised to believe that the way to talk to people about God is to water it down to the most acceptable pieces, love, forgiveness, eternal life, get him in the door, And then start to spring ideas like Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me later, when hopefully they can accept it. And so we shock the poor convert, who thinks, this is not at all what I was told I was getting myself into. And how often I talk to people who say, I've been in church for 20 years and I've never even heard of God's wrath. Or, the pastor stopped talking about sin because it was making people uncomfortable. Or had I known what was required of me, I never would have signed up. And I'm not making these up. Those are direct quotes. All right? This is what is being taught. We have people trying to make Christians without Christ. They go out thinking our part is to save people when that was never our part. The role of evangelism, the role that we play, is putting people face-to-face with God as he is so that they can fear him and, in turn, serve him sincerely and faithfully. Now, not only does Joshua not present a palatable God, but he doesn't avoid the reality of other gods. He doesn't pretend like there's no other options out there. As a matter of fact, he lays it out for them. He doesn't shield his kids away from all those potential gods, and he certainly doesn't worry that someone somewhere might be introduced to something that might in some way cause them to stumble. Instead, he actually lists out the other possibilities for him. He says, you got the gods of Egypt. Remember those ones? Those ones that God, one after another, single-handedly shot down? You could go back to them. He says, you got the gods beyond the river. The gods beyond the river was this kind of impersonal connection god, the earth and the sun. 
And God has continually showed them that he's in control of these things. If you remember earlier in Joshua, he actually made the sun stand still at one point. I am the God in control of all these things. You also have the gods of the Amorites. The gods of the Amorites are described as a storm god or he that lives on the mountain. What does that sound like? That sounds like Israel's God at Mount Sinai. It does it not, where he came down and he dwelt on the top of the mountain in a storm that had the people so fearful, not just that it was God, but fearful of the storm itself. He showed himself to be a much greater storm god than the god of the Amorites. And so Joshua says, here's who your god is. Here's the other gods. Put them on a scale. Choose. Because he knows that it isn't really much of a choice. And the reality is, God, in all of his glory, in all of his aspects, is so much greater than anything that we can create. It is ludicrous. And when we start creating God by cutting off some of his attributes that we don't find particularly attractive, we are actually presenting to people a false God. The real God is infinitely better. And if you don't believe me, read Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon goes through. He's wisest man that ever lived, had all the money and women you could ever want. All right? And he basically said, I'm going to pursue all these things to their end and see what they, where they eventually lead. And he takes on some gods that hit much closer to home than the god of the Amorites. He takes on wisdom, self-indulgence, toil, wealth, honor. And this is the conclusion that he comes to. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It isn't much of a choice. And Israel knows this. I mean, they've seen what God has done. They might be a little dumb sometimes, but they're not stupid. And so they respond... To Joshua. In verse 16, they say, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Sounds pretty good. But in many ways, they're just regurgitating back to Joshua what he just said because they know it's the right answer. Joshua knows this, or at least assumes that this might be the case. So he challenges their pledge. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So not only does Joshua give them a pretty heavy God to begin with, but he doesn't accept lip service. He doesn't accept their empty promises. Joshua is not concerned with getting the people to accept God. As a matter of fact, let's take that term for a second. How many times have you been asked, have you accepted Jesus? Will you accept Jesus? 
God does not care if you accept him. As James reminds us, even the demons accept that he exists. They even accept that he is powerful. I'm guessing the demons could lay out for us a history of God that is more complete than probably most of, I, most of us could. But the difference is, they see it with disdain. They see it with anger and hatred. They see it as the ones being crushed. We must not just accept Jesus, we need to worship him. Because he does not need, nor does he want, your acceptance. He demands your fear. A fear that is built out of love. A fear that is recognizes that, he's the, that the same God, who can do ultimately more than all that we could ask or think, can also do us more harm and consume us in a moment if we do not sincerely and faithfully serve him. This is our God. And as Joshua draws the line in the sand, this is basically what he's drawing. Which side are you on? And God looks very different based on which side of the line you're on. He's very powerful either way. He is still in control of all things. The difference is, on one side, you are going to see nothing but wrath poured out through that power. On the other side, you will actually see blessing poured out with the same power. So I plead with you to take God seriously. Too many people, too many people here are kind of playing with God thinking that you can appease him by coming here on Sunday or by serving in Kids Road or whatever thing you, that you do that you think, okay, well, this will make God happy. Do not accept him because you think you should or because you need something in your life and you're willing to try this or some girl said she would only date you if you were a Christian or because your wife loves him and she drags you to church every Sunday or because you see how Christianity could help to bring meaning to your life, or create some sort of structure, um, bring morality to your children, or whatever else. Fear him because he is God. You do not come to God on any merits of your own. You come to God on his merits. But you can choose what you do with what he has given you. Galatians 6 says this, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Not his pastors, not his wives, not his husbands. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God will not be mocked. The people of Israel thought that they could just acknowledge God and keep on living as they were. But Joshua makes sure that they understand exactly what they're committing themselves to. That their faithfulness to a jealous God must stem from choosing to sow the spirit rather than to the flesh. They must choose God alone, not in addition to the other options, and they must make this choice over and over again. Now, if your ears are itching because the word choose appeared in that paragraph numerous times, let me just say this. And I say this because I sit down with so many people who um, 
have a grasp of God's sovereignty, which is very real. God is in control of all things. But they use their systematic theology to basically get out of actually living for God. They say, I play no part. God is in control of all things. And so I'm just going to sit back and whatever happens, he's in control. Let go and let God. This isn't what God calls us to. As a matter of fact, Joshua says here, if you fear God, if you actually see who he is, it will naturally flow out in, sincere, in sincerity and faithfulness. And that sincerity and faithfulness flows out in our actions. We are to worship God, but not just worship him by raised hands and singing of songs. The greatest act of worship to God is to choose his ways over our own. As a matter of fact, that's the definition of worship. Choosing him over our own way. So Joshua calls them to purge themselves. He says, get rid of all the idols and make a commitment to purity continued in the future. He does this because he knows the power of group decision-making and the camp high mentality where they're all, we will serve! He's lived with these people, right? He's had to rebuke them over and over again. He knows exactly where their tendencies lie. He knows that it's easy to proclaim, we will serve the Lord, even after they do, as they do after he warns them. So Joshua doesn't just say, hey, yep, I got the answer I'm looking for, meeting adjourned. He goes one step further, and Joshua makes a covenant with the people. And so we're going to look at that, starting in verse 22. It says this, Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the word that the Lord spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now, a covenant is a solemn agreement that binds two parties to a set of promises, obligations, and consequences. And throughout the Bible, you see God establishing numerous covenants. God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 that he will not destroy the earth with with water again. He makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 that he will bless him, he will make him a great nation, and through his nation he will bless the world. He reestablishes the covenant with Isaac, with Jacob, and with Moses at Sinai. In these covenants, it is always God who sets the stipulations. It is always God stepping down and saying, this is the covenant that I make with you. But here, the covenant is a little bit different. This covenant isn't set by God um, in person, but it's set between two human parties, between Joshua and the people. It is a covenant done in the presence of God, but it is entered into 
by the two earthly parties. Now, we hear that, I think, a lot of times, and we think legalism, new rules and statutes. What does Joshua think he's doing? We think that it is wrong for the church or its leaders to ask you to make a commitment or to hold you to a promise you have already made. But Joshua shows us here that if we take sin seriously, if we actually see sin as offensive to God, if we see sin in the way that he sees it, we will actually want to be held accountable. And so he sets the people up as witnesses against each other. Now when you hear the word witness, you probably think court of law, right? Witnesses are set up to testify against somebody, to say, Yes, you actually did that. I was there when you made that commitment. And that's certainly part of what's being said here, that you have no excuse to say, I was ignorant of what the rules and the stipulations were. The people are witnesses against each other. But there's also an aspect of refining here, that they are actually working together to pursue purity. That the people are actually set up to hold each other accountable, to hold each other to task to call each other out on sin, to care for the purity of the church. The people are actually given the responsibility here to play a role in keeping pure the nation of Israel. Why? Because it's fun? Is that a fun thing to do? Do you think your pastors enjoy sitting down with people and rebuking them? Sometimes. But not usually. No, it it is not a fun thing to take on the responsibility of actually calling out sin as God calls it out. But it's what this entire book of Joshua is about, right? Purifying the nation so that they can present themselves pure and holy before God. Now, will we ever be fully pure and holy? No. But that doesn't mean that we don't pursue, pursue, pursue holiness, knowing that it, each and every sin that we do is offensive to God. Now, Joshua also sets up the stone as a witness against them. And we've seen a lot of stones set up throughout Joshua. They've been set up as memorials to a specific act of God. There was one set up as they came across the Jordan River. But this is a little bit different. This isn't just to remind them of something that happened. This is a physical reminder of a heart promise. This is something for them to see that reminds them what they have bound themselves to. This isn't to point to just what God has done, but the fact that he continues to rule his creation with power. And that's a power of both a just judge and a loving and gracious father. And just as the assembly of God's people in Joshua are witnesses of the promise, the earthly witness of God's continual work is his church. Just like the assembly in Joshua, we are a people chosen by God, called out by God, and empowered to live in a way that makes him known in sincerity and faithfulness. This is how Paul describes the church in Colossians 1. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what we need to be continually working towards. We see God's holiness. We see who he is. We see what he's done. We see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that compels us to work towards maturity in Christ. Why? So that we can present ourselves to the world as a people called apart. It's not about you. It's about acting to speak for God in your life. And Joshua is serious about the purity of all people, not just himself. He's not only concerned with his own personal piety, because he doesn't have that much life left. He knew these people. He'd seen them walk away time and time again. And he knew that as he passed on to the next life, he would no longer be able to keep a careful eye over them. And so he sets up these rules, and he sets up these statutes. They are not new rules and statutes. They are simply rules to help keep the people to the commitments that they already made to God. Joshua takes sin against a holy God as a serious offense because God does. So Joshua makes it his last action to bind these people to the promise of faithfulness. Now, not to spoil the story, but the next book in the Bible is Judges. If you've ever read Judges, the people don't stick to faithfulness. But they do see God's power. They see the hand of God against them with the same power that, they had, that had fought for them in the past. And the covenant that they make here is fulfilled, but not in the way that Joshua would have hoped. Because the problem is the people didn't take sin as seriously as Joshua did. They didn't take their sin as seriously as God does. If they were anything like us, they probably convinced themselves that their sin was a little thing that was not hurting anybody. That they could go through the motions, show up to church, get baptized, maybe even become a member, and that God would be appeased. They figured they were the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, not realizing that they were only God's people if they actually feared him and kept his commandments. And this eventually destroyed them. Sin destroys. And I've heard that over and over in, you know, in my life, and I've always thought about it as like, yes, you reap what you sow here in this life. Right? Eventually your sin catches up to you. Eventually your actions will cause harm to you. But I've seen that that's not always true. There's people who lie and cheat to get ahead, and they get ahead. Your sin destroys you because it pulls you away from God. Your sin destroys you because it gets you to worship something other than the holy God, the sovereign God, who will be coming back as a judge. So my question to you is, do you actually believe that your sin is offensive? And if you actually think it's offensive, are you actually willing to do something about it? Are you actually willing to take steps to fight against it? To act for the purity of the church? 
Now, we've set up a covenant here at this church. It's our membership covenant. And we've probably had more pushback on a membership covenant than we have on anything else that we've done as a church. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Sometimes it's because people were abused in a past church situation. But a lot of times, it's because people are afraid of actually committing and being held accountable by other people. They're actually afraid of joining into community because they know that their sin will then be seen. And so the fear of other people and the fear of shame drives them to not fear God as they should. Drives them to not actually act as God's church as he's called us to be. Causes them to hide away sin. To keep it in the closet because eventually it'll go away. But sin does not go away. It just continues to destroy. And the sin that you're hiding, you'll continue to sin in new ways to keep it hidden. And so, what we're offered in the gospel is the opportunity to reveal our sin, to bring it all out on the table. And God says, with a broken and contrite heart, I will not turn away. Your shame is never more than I can cover. Your sin is never more than the blood of Jesus can cleanse. And I just pray that as a church, we take seriously sin. Because I have continued to see sin destroy the people of God, church after church, family after family. And it's not what we're called to. So Joshua dies here at the end of the chapter. Here, the man who had led Israel, who had fought battle after battle, who feared God above man, gets to go be with his Savior. And we hear a lot about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the rest of the Bible. We hear about King David. But Joshua isn't mentioned all that much anymore. He really doesn't get the credibility that he deserves for what we would think. But I honestly, for how he's presented himself here, don't think that he would really care. And Joshua gets to write his own obituary in verse 15. And it is the often quoted, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the verb that is translated will serve actually means has served, am serving, and will serve. So what Joshua is saying here is not just in the three days that I have left here on earth, I will serve God. But he is saying, look at my life. It's a model of sincere and faithful service. Constantly looking to God for guidance. Constantly following his ways and not my own. And he leaves this earth quietly having done everything he could do with what was given to him. And so last week, Sam stood up here and said, if anyone, or somebody, I guess, better preach at my funeral, I was a terrible, undeserving, and broken sinner, yet Jesus loved me. Amen? I'd like to add something to that in light of Joshua's farewell address, version 2.0. 
And that is, he gave me new life. And I used every bit of energy that I had left to make sure that he was glorified in my life. So whatever time you have left on this earth, whether it's years, days, decades, I pray that you stop playing church, stop playing Christianity, and turn and worship the sovereign God, the creator of the universe. And if you're here for any other reason than because of God, feel free to not come back.